Hello there and welcome to the Wildlife Heroes podcast, brought to you by the Foundation for National Parks and Wildlife. I'm Gretchen Miller and in this second series, One Animal at a Time, we're heading out into the field to take a closer look at the stories behind new data only recently collated by the New South Wales National Parks and Wildlife Service that clearly indicates how carer rehabilitation work contributes to conservation. In this episode, it's all about the expertise of the vet. We're near Braidwood in the southern highlands of New South Wales, visiting Dr Howard Ralph, his team and the wildlife rehabilitators who travel to the Southern Cross Wildlife Hospital. And Howard is one of few wildlife specialist vets in the state. This clinic is just one of their services and is set in remote bushland. It runs once a fortnight over a long weekend and carers from far and wide bring their animals here for treatment they can't get anywhere else. And the team works late into each night to meet the demand. So let's go in and say hi. Uh, My name's Tanya Jaradovic and I'm a vet nurse here at the Southern Grass Wildlife Care Clinic. Charlie's moving around in the background. This is the consult room. So you'll probably spend time in here with us. This is where we'll bring the animal initially. This is the operating theatre. I've got to put a cover on that. This is where we keep critical care patients. And so this is when we do have the large animals at the moment, we wheel them into here if it's a wound dressing and stuff and we can set up another oxygen anaesthetic here. Or if it's a bigger surgery, we'd go there. This is the x-ray. So a lot of our patients require x-rays because there's things wrong with them that we need we to We wander back to the consulting operate. room but where vet surgeon Howard Ralph is with a patient, a feisty little magpie. I'm Howard Ralph. I'm a veterinary surgeon and medical doctor and I spend most of my waking hours and some of my sleeping hours dealing with wild creatures of various kinds who are either injured or sick or have suffered the privations of cruelty or have been displaced from their environment or have suffered things like burns and so on. Any event of any kind, we treat all species and we treat them here with the aid of the nurses and other people. We attend all disasters that we can, be they bushfires or cyclones or floods or droughts or wildlife massacres such as occur with so-called duck shooting. Oil spills. Oil spills. We go to all of those. So we do all of that and we write papers and we talk at conferences and we do all that sort of thing. The whole point of it is to provide a comprehensive, top-quality service for wildlife and to promote the cause of wildlife treatment and care. And you want to see more vets doing this? Absolutely. I couldn't agree more because none of us live forever and we've got a few really good people that came to us as students, vet students, and they're in practice, some of them, and we encourage them to try to look after whatever wildlife, and they're really good people. Howard turns to the patient to hand. This little magpie's had a few problems, and the latest one being that he had a 
problem with a leg which was treated and we had a spinal injury, two leg injuries, and we treated all of that. And then one leg, as it was getting better, one leg took a backward turn and became swollen on the foot, which we did various investigations and took a sample and did x-rays and so on, and changed the direction of treatment. And at that stage, the bird wasn't using it at all, really, but now it is, so it's improved over those few weeks. And so we're here for a checkup to see what progress we're making. And the, the x-ray showed that there had been some bone damage in the joint, which is not the end of the world. If the joint fuses in a functional position, they can manage perfectly well in the wild. So we're about to undergo the challenge of examining the patient. So, to me, now, hey, cool it, kiddo. Yeah, Auntie Tanya's going to hold you for a minute like that. There's the head. I always introduce myself to my patients beforehand because otherwise they get frightened and that's not fair. So it's much better. And that applies to all species, whether it be a horse. You don't go rushing up and start bothering them. You talk to them and introduce yourself, and particularly with little fellows like this, because the first contact with any patient, whether it be a small child or an adult human chimpanzee or whatever, the first contact is the one they remember. So it's important that it be done in a gentle, respectful manner, I think. With a lot of birds, the feet are equally as challenging as the beak. In fact, in some birds, the feet are more challenging than the beak. You know, like eagles and other raptors, if they grab you with their feet, you never forget. So, yeah, it's got it's that scar tissue around yeah, the front. It'll, mm. it'll be permanently swollen because the joint is disintegrated effectively. Mm. This is the sore leg. Oh. Yeah. This is the one that's under review. That's not a normal toe. It doesn't flex, you see. So it's probably sitting on a perch like that. I think is opt for medical treatment with a view to, if that doesn't get better, this being an abnormal toe, which is causing trouble, we may have to lose that toe. Mm. That'd be the best option for the bird. He can live without that toe. Poor little bird. Anyway, this foot is... We walk through to the waiting room to tell the magpie's carer as she anxiously waits that things will be okay, but perhaps not quite as perfect as she'd have liked. The magpie is just one of a few birds she has currently being regularly checked up on by Howard. I ask her her story and where the magpie comes from. My name is Nicole Filipides and I absolutely adore animals, wildlife, and my passion is to help them. So we actually live in an aviary, really, in an indoor aviary. So that's how it is. Beautiful. Yeah. When did you start doing that? When I was a child. I mean, I always collected anything, frogs. I used to live on the eighth floor of a building in Alexandria in Egypt. Always fed the sparrows and the pigeons. So, but seriously, in the last five years or so, seriously. Do you travel far to come here? One hour and a quarter from Celabombela. There is no way I can see an animal suffer without doing something about it. I mean, I had a sparrow last year, broken leg. Howard put a 
pin and everything fixed it. And then later broke it again in a different place. And then he got a hematoma to make things even worse. And he cut a very long story short, he was fixed and released. And the sparrow was fine. And the sparrow was fine and happy. And you have lots of birds. I have hundreds of birds. It started with the drought when there was no food for the magpies. There, was, there were no worms, no moths. There was, everything was completely dry. So I started feeding them. And, uh, and of course, they called their friends and, uh, and their relatives and the babies. Now I have over 100 magpies and they come every day, twice a day and sometimes in between. And how many are you caring for? I care need help? right now for three cockatoos that have beak and feather. There is no cure. They are doomed, but uh, I give them palliative care. They're happy in, in the comfort of the lounge room. It's very sunny. It has very large windows, so they, and they can see also the park and the paddock. It's very pleasant. So that's my family. Howard has gone back into the clinic, and from the little to the quite enormous, the next patient is a kangaroo, and she's a big one. Hello. Look at you with the dignified nose. Yeah, Look how beautiful is that? You are so beautiful. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. very yeah. heavy now. Okay. Yeah, yeah, all right. 25 kilos. Yeah, that's right. Where's your arm? She was getting hot just in the car, she yeah, said. Yeah. The kangaroo wriggles and struggles a bit, but Howard and Tanya stay calm and the roo settles down. Here we go. They're checking up on a previous operation on her front foot, which went well, but the foot will never be perfect and right now it's curling over. See, this is one of the problems that we face with wildlife. She needs to go, needs to be released, and I can do an orthopaedic operation on that wrist, which I did one before, but now these have curled over. And so she can probably manage with that, but in a perfect world, we would extend those fingers and maybe put pins in to hold them up. But that'll be another eight to 10 weeks before she can be released. And that's a, a bit of an issue, which with a dog or a human would not be an issue. Right? So it becomes part of the problematic state of things so that we have to decide what's best for her in terms of either having further interventional treatment, which we can do. And she has to go because... Well, she's getting big. You know, she needs to go. She's no doubt got friends with the mob that she's with currently and they need to stay together and the others probably want to all go and be released and she needs to go with them because they're a social group. And so it's just a matter of trying to compromise in some way, you know, for the best outcome for her. The other thing, I guess, to say about our patients are they're all deserving. Ones that we see here are never simple. They're always complicated and to some extent difficult, but they're all beautiful. And that's something that is, I guess, the icing on a cake in the sense that even though they might growl or bite or look sideways at you. The fact is they're all beautiful in the pure sense of the word. Why does one animal matter to you? Good question. The reason is because they are an individual. They have a life and it's the only life they've got. And while they might be part of a group, I think people lose sight of the fact that communities are made up of individuals. People say, oh, it's only a kangaroo. It's not actually. It's an individual and she's looking around and checking it all out and 
responding to whatever we do and say. And if you raise your voice, you'll get distressed. And so she's an individual with a brain that works in a neurological system that is taking everything in. If you don't have any individuals, you don't have a species or a community or anything else. So every individual matters and at a personal level, every individual feels their own pain and distress and suffering and they've got one life and we try to help them to live that life to the best of their ability. There's increasing evidence, in fact, that every individual <coughs> does matter on a conservation yeah, level as absolutely, well. Absolutely, absolutely. So yes. every animal that can be released. And those that are critically endangered, you get a certain level where if you get below that level, they've had it. You know, you've got a certain number that you need for the species to survive. Tell me the range of animals you've treated here. It's been, what, 25 years at this particular place? Yeah, well, we, we'll treat any wildlife. So we get the full range of birds, reptiles and mammals and amphibians, of course. We get to see frogs and so on, the full range of whatever the local ones are or if they come from elsewhere. We see quolls and any other mammal. We see the full range of birds, ranging from little red-breasted robins up to eagles. What can you do with a robin? They're so tiny. Well, it depends on the problem, of course. They've often got trauma. So if they've got trauma and microbats, we see microbats and others. And we saw a lot of microbats in the cyclones because they all got smashed into trees and ended up with fractures and so on. Well, they're only tiny, but still... If you follow the general surgical principles for any patient, then we would treat them accordingly and treat the compound infection and put a pin in the bone and all that sort of thing. And, and the same applies to any critter, be it a reptile, like a blue-tongued lizard. They often get fractures and fractured skull and will elevate that and operate on the head and elevate the fracture and put a pin in it and so on. What about frogs? Uh, frogs? How do you operate same, on a frog? Same thing, same way. If they've got a fracture, we'll probably pin it, depending on where it is. We've done that with leg fractures and pelvic fractures in frogs. And they'll survive? They're oh, yeah. such fragile little oh, sure. things, aren't they? Yeah. Shock doesn't get them? Well, not as much as it does with a large kangaroo. They do quite well, and the same with reptiles tend to do quite well if they're looked after properly afterwards, and... Same with little birds. I mentioned about little red robins and so on, similar type birds. Same principles apply. We put a pin in the fractured leg or whatever it is and treat accordingly head injuries and so on. We'll treat them according to their need and their clinical state. Outside, another carer has three kangaroos he's brought on an 11-hour journey with him in cages in the back of his car. He's been looking after them carefully on the road and is remaining anonymous for now, but he'll spend the night in the little caravan kept just for this purpose up behind the clinic. His animals are not what you'd call biddable. They're stressed from their journey. And the primary critical issue to contend with for any native wildlife in trauma settings, Howard tells me, is stress. We have protocols for dealing with stress, which include, as you mentioned before, your voice is a big deal and the way you speak to them and impart a sense of trusting and compassion and respect. They respond to that 
instead of being harsh and dismissive. So I think it's the full package of approach to any patient. Dogs and people tend to respond in a similar manner. Horses, cows and sheep tend to respond in a similar manner. They're all Eutherian mammals. Birds respond their way, reptiles respond their way. Many of the wildlife, particularly those who are marsupials, are different again in that they've got a different metabolic rate and reactivity. And the big factor in the difference is stress, and they suffer badly from stress. In fact, it can be quickly or slowly fatal in many wildlife species, and that's something we're dealing with all the time. So the reaction or the way that you approach wildlife has to therefore be inherently different at every point. Right from the point of inception when they're hanging in the fence or got hit by a truck or shot by some idiot. Right from that point, they're different and they need particular handling. Having said that, the standard approach to treating a broken leg or a laparotomy or something is pretty much the same in all species, whether they be dogs, humans or whatever. But the reaction to that can be different in wildlife in that you've got the big stress factor, a different metabolic rate, they respond differently to anaesthetics and drugs of various kinds. And so not only is it difficult, but can be quite disappointing if you're not aware of that because they don't respond in the same manner to treatment as you would expect from a dog, cat, horse or human. When you're ready, in your own time... Come on, little lady. Oh, cool on the floor. You don't want to get up. So when you're accounting for the stress levels of animals, so this is a stressed kangaroo, mm -hmm. what do you do at this point as you consider that stress? Okay, well, a number of things. We, we tend to keep them in their known environment until such times they've been sedated. Because it's having an operation, we give fairly heavy pre-medication before the anaesthetic. And one of the medications that we use in that regimen is an anti-anxiety medication, which is very effective. It was Valium, did you say diazepam? Yes, yeah. yeah, same thing. It's a very good anti-anxiety medication, and not only that, but it also imparts quite a good degree of amnesia. And that's what's called retrograde amnesia, which means that for a patient having that, same with us, if that is a pre-med, you don't remember the little bit that went before. So you don't remember having the needle. So for wildlife, that's a really big advantage. While the kangaroo settles after having her Valium before treatment, I walk back to the clinic to sit down and talk with vet nurse Tanya. We're recording close to the one-year anniversary of the disastrous Eastern States Black Summer fires of 2019 and 20, and the people of Braidwood are flooded with memories. Though this series will be released in winter, fire is only ever a season away. Last year, well-meaning members of the public were found putting honey or pawpaw on an animal's burns, causing more damage. But there are things you and I can do in an emergency. I asked Tanya what her advice is for wildlife care during fire crises. The first thing they could do is, is apply first aid. So it depends on how 
swiftly after the fire incident they picked up that animal. If it's, say, within six hours, then, you know, you can cool the burn and do that sort of thing like with, you would on your own. With? Well, with tepid water, not ice-cold water, because that'll just turn into hypothermia shock, all that stuff. So you just cool it under running water or if you've got a bottle of water or something for up to 20 minutes. But most of the time, people are not going to pick up a wild animal within a few hours of it occurring unless you're a firefighter or something but you still apply first aid so for example if the face is looking singed you can assume that the eyes are going to be affected and you could rinse out the eyes with sterile saline so just like you get in the first aid kits for people those little squirty things of saline or even clean water if you have nothing else you could stop any bleeding for example which often happens if they're running into things to flee a fire they often have fractures so you can apply a splint and obviously pain relief is extremely important so there are some products around that that carers may have access to and they need to know which one and how much to give and they would get that they would find that information with their association yeah or they do a training course so Dr Ralph and myself run a number of those courses on burns and bushfires, which includes pain relief because it's a major thing. Burns hurt. But more importantly, once they've done the first aid, don't actually delay anything because you want to apply first aid. You need to get to a veterinarian. Burns are complicated wounds. They're complex. They hurt. And it's not something you can just do at home, even if you have you know, have been looking after wildlife for a while. Burns are evolving wounds, so they will change. So what you see today is not what you may see tonight or what you see tomorrow. So each time they need to be assessed appropriately, the depth of that wound will change. So the burn might look at this level superficial, but then it actually might be a mid-dermal wound and a deep burn wound. So the pathology of burns is quite complicated and only a trained medical person can do that. Even a lot of veterinarians won't have that experience, but at least they'll be able to stabilise the animal. Often, if, for example, they look like they've got singed whiskers or something, you may not see much else, but you can assume that they've inhaled hot air and smoke and they might have internal burns. If that isn't dealt with immediately they're more likely to probably that'll swell the throat will swell and they'll die so there's a number of things that require veterinary attention straight away fluid therapy is an obvious one with being dehydrated again that can lead to shock so there's things that are not obvious upon first sight but they require a trained professional to be able to deal with it. So there was a lot of talk of honey and pawpaw and so Mm. on being used on burnt animals. Is that appropriate? Honey and pawpaw have their place in some things, but it would definitely not be something that you would use on a burn without medical advice, and it certainly wouldn't be something that you would do first up. Definitely not. You're more likely to make it worse and delay the healing process and cause more suffering for that animal. Black tea. I have beautiful black tea in my thermos. Howard joins me in the kitchen for a bit of a break and a cup of tea between patients. He's been a wildlife vet for over 40 years and I asked him what made him choose that path. I've been in practice a long time and when I was in veterinary practice generally working in other practices or my own practice for many years it was obvious that wildlife were not getting a really good deal. And at that stage, it was some years back, they were actually treated as being really relevant and almost to the point where people would say things like, oh, they can't be treated and they don't feel pain or whatever, nonsense, of course. 
but it was obvious to me that they needed a better deal. Why did you care and others, when so many others don't or just found it too hard? What made you care? What in your upbringing made you go wildlife? You know, these guys Um, need attention. I suppose because my upbringing was lovely in that regard. My beautiful mother cared for anything that came in the door and so I guess I just grew up. And then I went away as a teacher for a number of years to New Guinea and spent a lot of time by myself reflecting on the world and thinking about everything. And when I came back, I wanted to go to university and I was accepted into human medicine and veterinary medicine. And at the end of the day, I decided on, there was a greater need in veterinary medicine at that time. So I did that end of the 60s. So at any rate, headed that way. And it seemed to me at the time that wildlife were worthy and they did feel pain and they did need proper attention. And so I headed that way and I'm glad I did. After that, of course, I went into practice and the reality was almost overwhelming that wildlife weren't getting proper attention to detail. So I And I went and did human medicine because I thought I wanted to go back to New Guinea and couldn't really go back as a a clinical veterinarian because there was really not a place for that. So I thought, well, at least if I do human medicine, I'll have a better insight to treating other primates like orangutans and so on, all the other beautiful primates. And since that time, I've been all over the place like Indonesia and South Africa and so on treating wildlife. And it just became obvious to me after studying veterinary medicine that all living creatures have a very similar biochemistry and neurological anatomy and so on. And there's no reason why they should be so different. They were all the same. And why would you not expect other creatures to feel pain? And therefore, why would you not expect them to be treated adequately? And I think we should and we do. That's why I'm here and that's why we've got the charity to try to emphasise that point. So we do our best to treat all of our patients fairly and with dignity and respect and as as well as we can do. Dr Ralph and his team don't just work at this clinic. There's a Sydney clinic as well, and they also field calls from around the country and internationally to advise other vets through operations and treatment. For me, it's almost the end of my visit, but for the clinic, more patients await. No one is turned away and they'll continue into the evening until everyone is cared for. I head outside to the waiting area again and find Yi, the carer of Tara, the kangaroo with the injured foot we met earlier. It's decided Tara will get anti-inflammatory treatment, but won't have a full operation. Hi, I'm Yi. I'm a wildlife carer and today I'm at the Southern Cross Wildlife Care with Dr Howard with my injured kangaroo Tara. How long have you been a, a wildlife carer? Oh, not, not long, three to four years. And what made you want to become a wildlife carer? Oh, gosh. <laughs> Where do you even start? <laughs> I, I think I was at a life, uh, no, banned life export protest and I saw this lady with a little joey in the, the bag and, and I was like, oh, can you do that here? <laughs> And so I started to explore how to do it and I joined Wild Care and uh, started to care for wildlife. But it's just for me for now, it's mainly kangaroos. Yeah, but occasionally we have come across lizards and birds, which we help to rescue, but we don't care for them because I don't have the experience yet. 
and we just pass them on to more experienced carers. Yeah. yeah. So what has caring for kangaroos done for you in, you know, in the past four years? What's it like? Well, how's it changed your life? How do you say? I, I don't have children, so in a way it's a bit like having kids because um, you, you raise them when they are a small little joey and then, you know, to a release age and you release them and sometimes they come back, sometimes they don't. So, you know, it's, it's a bit like being a mother. Yeah. And when they're little, they sort of take you as their mom, you know, when they follow you around and they'll, they'll call to you when they are, you know, hungry or upset. And, and it's quite a... How do you say this? It's quite a, I don't know what the word is, but it's quite an experience. You know, you go through the highs and lows when, you know, when they are sick and or when they are injured and you have to do something and or you panic like, oh, they're having diarrhea, what do I do? <laughs> you know, so I've, I've learned a lot, you know, how to care for, for them. And, and I think it's just, just such an enriching experience, you know, when... It's like holding a baby and you're looking at the little faces, looking at you in trust, and you know, and you try to do your best for them. But for me, it's also full of um, some some of stress because you don't know whether you're doing the right things, and that's where you have if you have good mentors, and I have good mentors, and they they will help you, you know, and you call them in the middle of the night. Oh, I don't know what is this, and, and they say no, it is normal, and you know, sort of help you, and you learn through the experience, and you you just hope that you can do the best for for them, and when they get released. You know, it's up to them and you've given them a chance. Why do you think it's important to spend this personal time on these animals? Oh, how should I say this? That, that's the, the starfish theory. Why do you throw the one starfish back into the ocean when there's heaps, you know? Because it matters to that one, one starfish and so it matters to this one kangaroo. And, you know, because of limited resources, limited time, you are never going to help every single one. All you can do is help the one or the two or the, uh, the few and hope that it makes a difference. And it does in a small way, because if everyone does a few or just a little, and it has a growing or you know, more encompassing effect, I guess is do what you can, because you can. It's actually better. And I don't really want to use an anti-inflammatory because the bones are lytic. I need to go and look at the x-ray probably. Let me know when I can put him back so I can... He's got his claw in my finger. his claw? <laughs> Sorry, there you are. Just here to relieve your suffering. Oh, now the other finger. That's alright, it's not so painful there. It's right on the... I'm just trying right to cover it. Quicker there. Yep. I'm just stopping the bleeding and then we're done. Yours or mine? Yours or the bird's? Well, the bird first. The birds take preference, of course. So I think the people that deny the fact that we can have a relationship with all other living species, all other you know, mammals, birds and reptiles, we can have a relationship with them and those that would deny that relationship are missing out on a huge amount of life. All right, no, it's all right, kiddo. Okay. Howard Ralph and Tanya Duradovic from Southern Cross Wildlife Hospital. And this has been Wildlife Heroes, One Animal at a Time, brought to you by the Foundation for National Parks and Wildlife and supported by the New South Wales Government through its Environmental Trust. 
Don't forget to listen to our other episodes where we visit a bat school. Check out the latest on koala care. Spend some time in the Southern Highlands with the Higher Ground Raptor Centre and talk about what's revealed by the New South Wales National Parks and Wildlife Service's new publicly accessible data dashboard. I'm Gretchen Miller. Catch you next time.